Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Jacob's Cabin. This is Anna in Indiana, your host. We're here to talk about Lost, of course. And today we're talking about episode eight of season five, the episode that was titled La Fleur. Um, before we get to that, I just want to say this is also my 10th podcast episode. So that's a um, that's a pretty good milestone, kind of like a birthday or an anniversary or something. So happy anniversary to Jacob's Cabin, 10th episode. To go along with that, I have a list here, 10 advantages to living with the Dharma Initiative to sort of recap this most recent episode. So here they are, the 10 advantages to living with the Dharma Initiative. Number 10, there's a truce with the hostiles. Number 9, you get your own yellow house, even if it's not your old house. At least you get a house. Number 8, if you're Sawyer, you finally get a new, complete, matching pair of glasses. Number 7, there are cute, adorable little redhead girls running around. Number 6, Captives get delicious-looking sandwiches. Did you notice the sandwiches that were on the table when everyone was waiting for Sawyer to come out of his little meeting with Horace? Those sandwiches look great, and they weren't even looking at them. Number five, if you work security, Sawyer's your boss. Number four, they have a submarine. Number three, there are lots of fresh vegetables in the kitchen. Did you see all those vegetables in Juliet's kitchen on the counter? There were so many vegetables. Number two... Blue Dharma Jeeps, pretty cool looking. And number one, you know that you're supposed to wear earplugs when you're passing through the sonar fence. So those are the 10 advantages to living with the Dharma Initiative. I want to start off the discussion today by looking at different characteristics of the Dharma Initiative Society and the others, or the Hostile Society. Uh, Really quickly, let me just tell you where we're going in this podcast. I'm going to give my initial reactions and thoughts on the episode. Uh, Then we'll have some feedback. There are lots of ideas you guys have about um, the statue and other things. Um, They can't wait to get to that stuff. Then Denise will be here later. We'll talk about the episode some more and have our character awards. And of course, we had a big debate left over from last week. Uh, The poll question from last week was, who do you trust more Ben or Widmore. And so uh, we'll get the results from that poll. And you guys left a lot of great comments. So we'll have to uh, see what you guys thought and who comes out victorious from that poll. Um, So the Dharma Initiative and the others in the mid to late 70s. It seems like a good place to live. Everybody has a job. Everybody has something to do. You know, everybody's a productive member of society. They have dynamite for some reason. Um, The only dynamite we've seen before was on the Black Rock, but apparently the Dharma Initiative has some too, probably for building places like the Orchid or any any hatch that was underground so that they could uh, blast holes in the ground, I guess. They also have a submarine, which is really interesting. I wonder who the pilot of the submarine is. A member of the Dharma Initiative? I mean, they've got all kinds of people, so I guess it's not that surprising, but uh, it'd be interesting to be the submarine pilot and always be piloting that sub back and forth from the island to the outside world. We never saw a pilot. Like when Locke blew up the sub, there was nobody standing there saying, hey, you blew up my submarine. What am I supposed to do now? Or I've always been free to come and go as I want with the submarine. And 
as long as I just do what these people want. And there was nobody standing around saying those sorts of things, so I wonder where the pilot went. And now that I'm thinking about it, I can't help but wonder where the pilot went for the submarine that John Locke blew up. He wasn't standing there saying, hey, that's my way off the island, you know, I have an agreement, and I can come and go as often as they need, but I at least I get off the island, you know. There was no one standing around who was saying that, or no one that we saw say, okay, now I need to integrate myself into the people who live on the island. There was just nothing, so I guess we'll never know, but... Uh, more things about the Dharma Initiative. They have this way set up with the submarine so that pregnant women leave the island. So they're, they don't seem to be having those pregnancy issues yet where the women and the, and the babies die, but they just don't have the kind of expertise there on the island. I wonder how large the Dharma Initiative is. I mean, they seem to have lots of houses, lots of activities going on, but they don't have everything they need. They don't have an OBGYN doctor there to take care of the pregnant women, they only have an internist, and that's just for general medicine. One other interesting thing to note from the Dharma Initiative, we hear that the polar bears are still in their cage at this point, so that's interesting. Now for the hostiles, there are a few interesting things to notice as well. I was worried by the fact that they seemed to carry around a bag to use to execute people. When they ran into Amy and Paul, they had a bag ready to throw over her head. I thought that was really weird. Are they expecting to go kill people? while they're out, you know, making their normal rounds or whatever it is they do. Um, Richard, where does he get his clothes? He always has such nice clothes on, and I don't know where he gets them. Obviously, he can leave the island. He was there at Locke's birth, um, and he came and visited Locke again. So he seems to have some way of coming and going. The submarine seems to be a Dharma Initiative thing, and so, of course, the first couple times that we know of Richard leaving the island, that really predates having the submarine there, as far as we know. I mean, there, there could have been one there with the American military troops that um, they ran into on the island with the hydrogen bomb, but uh, we don't know. Going along with this whole topic, something else I'd noticed once about one of the others, I forget when, maybe at the end of Season 4, when Locke went and found Richard. I think that might be when it was. I noticed that there was a man of the others who had a pair of glasses. So if they are really this indigenous people, then where do they get things like glasses and walkie-talkies? The man that Juliet shot had a walkie-talkie on him. And surely, in 1974, surely that's not left over from when the U.S. military came in 1954. I just can't imagine that those things would last that long and still um, be that functional, look that good. Or where would they get batteries, even? It, it just doesn't make sense. And then they also have guns. Where do they get their guns? Um, 20 years after the first time we see them take all this equipment from the U.S. military. They're still wearing this worn-out kind of clothing that they seem to be wearing all the time. It's also interesting to notice how important of a concept justice seems to be to them, and it might be an avengeful sort of justice. They want justice because their men were killed. They have to see that something was done about that, um, but I guess that would help uphold the truce. But what are they going to do with the body? One of my first thoughts, this is going to sound ridiculous, but one of my first thoughts was Richard's going to take the body, something's going to happen to it, and it's going to turn out that all the hostiles are a bunch of zombies. Richard has this zombie army, and when things go wrong, they take the bodies of dead people, turn them into zombies, and raise them into an army. Okay, that sounds ridiculous, but that was my first initial thought on that. Anyway, I think the last thing to talk about with regard to these two societies, the Dharma Initiative and the Hostiles, is the way they interact in the truce. The truce seems very interesting, and it kind of reminds me of the rules between Ben and Widmore, so I wonder if there's some sort of connection there. 
um, because a truce would imply that there are certain standards that they're supposed to follow in the way they interact. It seems that they have some sort of boundary, and I think it's got to be more than just the sonar fence. The sonar fence is for their immediate location, where they all live, to keep them safe, of course, from the smoke monster. It seems you can't keep Richard out, so I wonder if... Um, he knows about the earplug trick, and he just wears earplugs when he walks through the sonar fence. But we've seen pretty clearly in other episodes that the Dharma Initiative extends beyond the boundaries of that fence. They made beer runs to the other stations on the island. The stations are a little bit spread out. You have to travel quite a ways in between some of them. Think of the station that the tailies found on the other side of the island, and then they hiked across the entire island and ended up with the Losties at the Swan Station. So I guess that just about exhausts that topic. There are a few other things I want to bring up before we get to the feedback from you guys. Um, I just want to kind of go through these things real quick in a sort of list form. One thing is um, I was interested when Miles said about the latest flash, the last flash, that felt like an earthquake. That one was different, and it did sort of sound different, too. It almost had some smoky-esque sort of sounds in it. But the fact that he said that it felt like an earthquake made me wonder if maybe the whole island shook violently and maybe the statue fell over because of that. Maybe that was the cause of the destruction of the statue and why there's only a foot left in the future. And after that last flash that they experienced, why did Daniel Faraday say about Charlotte, she moved on and we stayed? Doesn't it seem like it's the other way around? I mean, I really thought about it the other way, that they moved on because they were the ones moving through time and she stayed, or did she move on someplace else, someplace different? I don't know. It's interesting to me that Sawyer, when presented with the choice of getting off the island, doesn't want to leave again. Maybe he's hoping that somehow Kate will come back. He knows that Kate won't be out there if he goes off the island in 1974. He knows there's nothing out there for him, but I wondered, why didn't he think about his parents? Maybe 1974 would have been in time for him to save them, because now it seems like they are affecting history somewhat. And Faraday has always said, it doesn't matter, but now he says, it doesn't matter what we do. Um, things are going to happen the way they're going to happen, and... I wonder why Sawyer wouldn't think, okay, I can go stop this con man from conning my parents, I can save their lives, I can save our family, and have a much happier ending. Of course, that would change his whole life, and his ending up on the island wouldn't have even happened. Now, in 1977, the three years later part, I was wondering when Jin comes up to Sawyer and he says, no sign of our people that he'd searched grids one through three or whatever, I was wondering who the people are that he's talking about. Are they Dharma Initiative people? Is it Locke that he's looking for? Is it the Oceanic Six that he's looking for them to return? Is he still looking for, say, Rose and Bernard, who we haven't seen yet? Who are his people that he says he's looking for? No sign of our people. With regard to all the interactions between the hostiles and the Dharma Initiative, I thought it was interesting how many times they mentioned the word bury. It seemed to me like they were saying bury a lot. We have to bury them. How well did you bury them? Um, and I wonder if there's anything significant about this. I've always kind of wondered if there's something significant about being buried on the island or not being buried. Think about Goodwin. He was not buried. Ben just left his body there and it was sort of like a final rejection. Like, you're not part of our group anymore. Or... I guess, rejection by Ben specifically, but still, um, disrespect to his body there in the end. Um, someone wrote in and pointed out to me that um, Rousseau and Carl got buried, which was interesting, that somebody took the time to bury them and didn't just leave their bodies there. I think that was Kimi and his men. That seems sort of out of character. Um, and there are a lot of people who didn't get buried, who died on the island, that show up later, you know, like Charlie. 
he drowned in the water. He didn't have a chance to get buried. And he shows up to Hurley in a vision. And Yemi, he didn't get buried. He was there on the plane for years. And then he shows up in visions. And Claire didn't get a burial. And she showed up in Jacob's cabin. Christian didn't get a proper burial. And now he's speaking for Jacob. So there's got to be something significant about burial in this show. But I'm not sure what it is exactly yet. But I'll let you know when I figure it out. So let's move on to the feedback now because I've got a lot of that from you guys, a lot of good thoughts. So we'll be right back in a second. time to get into what you guys are saying about this episode, the things you're thinking and theorizing. As always, thanks to everyone who takes the time to write an email or write on the blog or call in and leave a voicemail. I do appreciate that very much. Uh, We're going to start today by looking at a theme, which is, of course, the four-toed statue, because a lot of people had thoughts and reactions to seeing that, and so I'm going to run through a few reactions really quickly, and then we'll go back and catch some of the other stuff that you guys wrote in about. I had mentioned on the blog that I let out a little yell when we finally got to see the statue, and Sean O'Nevo wrote on the blog and said, I too let out a yell when I saw the completed four-toed statue. Then I let out another yell when I realized we could only see the back of the statue, because I knew that it would be a while before we get to see the front. That's probably going to be very true. Clara wrote in and said that she thinks the statue is of the Egyptian god Anubis, which explains the Ankh necklace that um that paul had he's the god of mummification he was also the god of the dead before osiris and she thinks that's pretty interesting it is um with all the dead people and resurrection and all those sorts of things on the island there's some very interesting connections len in chicago wrote in and said it was great to finally see the statue and that might be it as much as i would love to have some episodes go way back into the island's mythology i'm feeling that the writers are going to limit most of that until the very end They've always said there will be questions left unanswered, but I do agree that often it's better for us to imagine what something might be than to have it explained. Kind of like having a really cool magic trick exposed, leaving the audience going, oh, that's how they do it, whoopee. DJ Chow commented, I so much wanted them to somehow turn around so you could see the face. It would have been so funny if they did that and you saw the face of, like, Richard or Locke. But this scene does point out that the wheel existed way back in time when the statue existed. And DJ Chow, that's a really good thing to point out. Um, It makes you wonder about the origin of the wheel down in the chamber. Where did it come from? And... Is it somehow a way to harness the power of the island and somebody decided, okay, we can do this with a wheel, or did it just always exist there? Valerie wrote in with quite a few thoughts on the statue and also on the Ankh. She says that it's probably one of the most recognizable Egyptian symbols, and it's specifically a symbol of eternal life, and that could be a possible connection to Richard Alpert. Um, Valerie also has a few suggestions on who the statue actually is, which of the Egyptian gods it is. She suggests it might be Sekhmet, a warrior and sun goddess associated with destruction, who's also closely associated with Bastet, the cat-headed goddess. And we could see on the statue that it had ears, so um, some sort of animal, maybe cat or other animal uh, similar to that uh, would be a good guess. Um, And she says that Sekhmet is believed to be the dark side of the two, of Sekhmet and Bastet. Um, So that'd be interesting. Is the dark side ruling the island at this point? 
Um, Valerie also says, Sekhmet was created by Ra and sent out to destroy members of mankind that were disobeying him, but she was uncontrollable and he feared she would destroy all human beings, so he had to trick her into drinking blood-colored beer until she was too drunk to continue the slaughter. Not that this is specifically connected to anything on Lost, but I just thought that the idea of some uncontrollable force that could destroy mankind might be relevant to Lost. Yeah, I agree with you, Valerie. I think that's really relevant, and I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, you also said you don't remember seeing a cat on Lost. I think we've seen one one time. Mikhail had a cat at the flame station. He had a cat named Nadia. So I guess we've seen the one cat, but not very prominently. Uh, Vincent the dog is a lot more of a prominent figure as far as animals go. Valerie says she also looked up the Sphinx in Wikipedia, and it appears that Sekhmet and Sphinxes are closely associated with one another. Sphinxes were carved as guardians of tombs to show the dead pharaoh's close relationship with Sekhmet. A sort of general connection between Egypt and Lost. The Egyptians were obviously really focused on the afterlife, the transition from life to death, and immortality. There's been some apparent immortality on Lost with Alpert, and lots of focus on death and existence after death, plus lots of returning to life or appearing after death. Those are all really great things to point out, Valerie. Thanks for that. Moving on to another topic, Anne Beth wrote in with some really good thoughts this week. She has a little theory. She says, I think the Losties will let a polar bear turn the frozen donkey wheel, and with that they will catch up with the present time island, and the polar bear is then found by Charlotte in Tunisia. Uh, that's a little theory she's been working on. Um, I don't know about that, though, because I don't know how they would possibly get the polar bear from the Hydra Island over to the main island, get it down into the orchid station, into the chamber, and then have it turn the wheel. Uh, and also, Jacob seems to be pretty picky, or Christian, or whoever's in charge. I don't know. Um, but whoever's in charge on the island seems to be picky about who turns the wheel, because things went bad when Ben turned the wheel, because he wasn't supposed to. But it is an interesting question to think about. Okay, how are they going to actually fix where they are in time? How are they going to fix all this once they are finally all together, and they realize, okay, we're stuck three decades back, what are we supposed to do about it? And Beth also raises the question, what happened to Olivia Goodspeed? Things don't look good for her. Did she die? I think she must have died because when they met Ben and his father, that was probably in the 60s, and she was married to Horace back then, and then now we see in 1974, Horace is apparently single, marries Amy eventually, and they have a baby, but, um, yeah, that is strange, because Horace is still asking that question, how long does it take to get over someone? It's it's kind of strange, because wouldn't he know, based on this, based on his first wife, wouldn't he know, well, it's been so many years now, it's been ten years, and yes, you can get over someone in ten years, but not in three. And then what killed her? That's a really good question. Maybe it was something with the hostiles. Maybe that's why Horace is the leader and takes charge of these interactions with Richard Alpert, because... They've had previous experience, and he doesn't want them to go through the same thing that he went through. DJ Chow wrote some theories on the blog, and here's one of them. He says, This may be a way out theory, but maybe Ben was never chosen by Jacob to be the leader. Maybe Richard just used him to get the inside track to take Dharma down. And maybe, because of his efforts, he was given a chance to be the leader. And all this time, he just pretended to have a real connection to Jacob when he didn't. And that's why, like Richard said to Locke, that he worries about childbirth and other things rather than the island. And during the cabin scene, Jacob calls out to Locke to help him. If Widmore was telling the truth, it could be that he was the one who was in charge of the others during this time, and he ordered the purge on the Dharma. Ben said that he hadn't ordered the purge. And in time, Ben tricks Widmore, saying maybe Jacob told him that Widmore had to move the island, and thus expelled him. Certainly an interesting theory, DJ Chow. Uh, the thing that doesn't really fit in with that, in my mind, is that when Ben and Locke were in the cabin, and... 
Ben was talking to Jacob and Locke was saying, who are you talking to? There's nobody sitting there. Ben did seem to be interacting with someone and then Jacob seemed to push him out of the way. So it seems that they do interact some. I mean, I would take that as an indication that they're communicating in some way, though it is a very strange interaction. And it's also strange that Locke can't see it. I thought he had quite a bit of faith at that point, but apparently he wasn't quite ready to see Jacob or see his representative yet. Another thing DJ Chow wrote was, So I have a question. By the way Horace talks about the sub, it makes trips back and forth to the island every now and then, and going with Miss Hawking's information, I'm guessing they can predict where it is when they want to, and use the sub to get there. So if the others purge the Dharma on the island, wouldn't they also have to have somehow killed off the Dharma off island as well, or they would keep on coming? If they could afford to build all these stations, I'm guessing they could get another submarine. So either they took over the Dharma both off and on island, or they cut off the Dharma entirely, maybe by moving the island. Maybe that's how Ben tricked Widmore in turning the wheel to hide the island from the Dharma initiative. How does Richard get off the island and back to the island way before Dharma came? He told Locke that getting off the island was privileged information. How does he get off to see Locke being born and then come back to the island? Does he take a boat? Those are all excellent questions, and I do like your theory about um, getting in touch with Miss Hawking, but I'm not sure how close Miss Hawking and Ben were working. They didn't seem to be used to working together or used to coordinating these things like sub-trips, so that makes me kind of question that. But um, I also wonder if maybe Miss Hawking was the one who was sent off the island to take over the lamppost station because she was involved with the hostiles, the indigenous people on the island, and so maybe they sent her off. Maybe they had to exile her in order to force her off the island, or maybe she volunteered, uh, or something happened that made her want to go and take over this other station. Another question that raises is, are we going to see Miss Hawking on the island now? Because if she went to take over the other Dharma station when the purge happened, that's not till 1992. I mean, she's got almost a couple decades left before that would have to happen. So I wonder if we'll see her on the island at all. That would make for some very strange interactions, considering that Daniel's there, and that she would recognize most of them from the past as well. It would be interesting to see if they uh, they run into each other. Jason commented on the blog with some more general questions about Lost, and he says, Haven't we reached the point in the show where our characters should be talking to each other about what they have seen and experienced? Let me be clear, I love Lost. I think it is the greatest show ever. But I really think that we have reached a point where the Losties should be asking questions, especially since they have the opportunity to talk to some characters that could give them some answers. It reminds me of how Saeed wanted to get some answers out of Juliet when she joined up with them. He didn't get any, of course, but at least he made some sort of effort. I just think that it is completely unrealistic for these characters to not ask questions. I think I have to agree with you on that, Jason. I think that after so many years, I mean three years that they've supposedly been together interacting with each other they should be asking a lot more questions they should be demanding explanations for some of these things and they don't and of course that helps the plot and the mystery of it all um but yeah i wish they would ask some questions that to us seem like common sense questions um you listed a few questions here what is the island how do you know this um just common sense but you know John wrote a comment on the blog, more of a question, a very important question. He says, And Widmore said he led the island for three decades. Where was he when Richard spoke to Lafleur? That's an excellent question, and we need a little explanation on that. I agree with you. It, it does seem strange. Is Richard the spokesperson, or um, was Widmore incapacitated somehow at that point? If this really is the two leaders of the two groups meeting together 
to talk about things relating to the truce, then yeah, why isn't it Horace and Charles Widmore? It doesn't make a lot of sense. And where's Pierre Cheng? He's the other person I would have expected to see. I would have expected to see him as a leader and not Horace. So I guess uh, maybe they're both intermediaries going between the two groups. But that's always seemed strange to me as well. Why is Richard always the second in command of the others? Why isn't he the leader? Because he seems a lot wiser and a lot more knowledgeable than any leader we've seen them have. Martin left some really great comments on the blog, comments that make me wish I'd paid a little more attention when I took that Shakespeare class back in college. He says, There is a definite connection of loss to the plays of Shakespeare. In many ways, it is a modern lift of that history and dramatic telling. Personally, I believe Lost is the best use of the television media in storytelling. Nothing else comes close. It has created awareness for important literature and asked its audience to think about good, bad, and just think about what they are watching. Here's my thought. Everyone is now taking a side, Ben or Widmore, as they go to the war. They are so determined to fight. Is it the war of the roses? Where is the cancer-surviving rose? Is it the task of a few special characters to prevent the war from ever happening? The blogs and podcasts are really determined to expound about the details of the stories. They really at times don't care about the human drama. They seem to be missing the real story. This is a creative telling of love, loss, failure, self-healing, discovery, reinvention, and that list goes on. Everyone on a side that goes to war thinks they are right. This is why I think that the mission of the Oceanic Six, without their awareness they are on a mission, is to prevent a calamity from taking place. Thanks, Martin. I appreciate you taking the time to write in about this human side, the human drama aspects of the show. Um, it's good to stop and smell the roses, so to speak. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, and I'm, I'm right with you wondering where Rose is. Where are Rose and Bernard? I hope they show up soon because I definitely want to make sure they're okay. As far as some of the other characters, I guess I could just mention really quickly that DJ Chow had said what a great character Sawyer is and how great he is in this episode, which I absolutely agree. And Annabeth had also said, don't you think Sawyer and Juliet are cute together? Um, they just seem so believable together. You know, it seems really natural. And Kate doesn't deserve Sawyer. So, um, yeah, that, there are a few more comments that uh, I kind of skipped over, but I guess I'm going back to them now because it does show the human side of things that we can appreciate um, the relationships that are taking place between the characters. Ian in Ithaca, my cousin, wrote on the blog, um, he has some comments comparing Lost to chess, and I don't know anything about chess, I don't know how to play the game, which I said on the blog, and some people wanted to teach me, but um, I'm just going to read his comments. I liked when you guys were discussing the possible invincibility of John Locke, Ben, and Widmore. It plays right into my long-standing, Lost is an eternal game of chess theory. Ever since John Locke referred to Boone's death as a sacrifice the island demanded, it has reminded me of chess, so I'm always looking for things to kind of fit into that. I think that for most of human existence, people have been drawn to the island to take part in some kind of battle for control of the island, and somehow the winner determines the fate of the human species. This is actually a very common theme in anime. We have seen that John Locke and Ben have had very similar lives, both were born prematurely, traumatically, didn't know their mothers. Maybe this is a prerequisite for being the future king of their set of chess pieces. Also, we see that Aaron has a lot of the same things in his life as John and Ben, so I think that he is also destined to be a king later in his life. I don't really want to go into too much depth trying to figure out which characters would be which piece, like Kate is a knight because of her black horse, and Mr. Echo is a bishop because of his religion. That's probably overthinking the whole thing. There is also the pervasive black-white motif that you can check out on the Lostpedia site. There are a lot of interesting connections, my favorite of which is that the babies that we have seen have had black and white stuffed animals. In Jigion, Jin buys a panda bear for a baby, and in Something Nice Back Home, Aaron has a killer whale, possibly implying that the children have yet to be committed to either side. 
Oh, yeah. Also, in the Mobisode, King of the Castle, we see Ben and Jack discussing leaving the island. Then Ben performs a castle move where the king switches places with a rook. Maybe only kings can move the island. Thanks for your thoughts, Ian. Uh, that seemed very interesting comparing Lost to Chess, and I wish I knew more about chess to be able to comment a little more about that. But uh, I also like that you brought up the white-black motif with the colors of the chess pieces and the things that we've seen in the show. That's, that's a really great connection. Thanks for that. All right, I've got two more email comments, and then I'll get to a couple voicemails. Michael wrote in, and he was wondering some things about Walt from uh, last week's episode. He says, could someone else have spoken to Walt in between uh, when he sees John Locke and when he visits Hurley and told him about Locke's alias? Even if that's true, it seems strange for Walt not to just call him Locke when speaking to Hurley. Maybe it's another example of Walt being special that he knows about the name Bentham, or maybe it's just a slip-up on the part of the writers. I think you've got a good point there, Michael. I think there's a lot of possibilities. Um, he could know about the name Bentham from one of his dreams. He could have been warned in a dream or a vision. Um, it could be that Abaddon has been keeping tabs on Walt and uh, visited him or called him some other time and said, hey, make sure that um, you talk about Locke with the alias name to keep him safe because that was supposed to be Abaddon's purpose was to keep him safe. Um, and Glenn in Scotland wrote in, and he's got a theory he's been working on. He says, We still don't know how Ben got his injuries before boarding Flight 316, so... Remember back in Season 3, I think you actually mean Season 4, Glenn, the time when Ben pulled a video out of the safe and showed it to John Locke? Um, remember the video of Widmore unloading a tied and hooded figure from a car? Is it possible that the hooded figure was in fact Ben? Could Woodmore have followed Desmond and Penny, seems reasonable, and set up a protective watch over her? Then, when Ben heads off to keep his promise to an old friend, he gets nabbed by Woodmore and his goons. They rough him up, remember Woodmore says he can't kill Ben, and he escapes, then calls Jack and says he got sidetracked and he'd meet him at the airport, etc. Thanks, Glenn, for your theory there. Uh, I think it's a pretty good one. It'd be interesting if that were true. I'm not sure how the time travel and things in the past affecting the future would play into that. I'm not sure if it's actually possible with our rules of time travel, but I think that's a really interesting way to look at things. And we didn't see who that character was in the video. And if it were Ben, that would be really, really funny. Um, I have one more email, actually, that just came in this afternoon. It's from Kelly, and she says, I liked this episode because it was the cream we needed for the strong coffee we've been drinking for the past few weeks. We needed something light. When we saw the statue and later Paul's wooden onk, it made a nice connection to the Africa references that have been just below the surface of the show, Tunisia, the Black Rock ship, the pyramids, Nigeria, etc. I don't know how this is all going to play out, but I find the possibilities to be endless. On to the shipper stuff, I'm actually glad Sawyer and Juliet are together. Honestly, considering how cold Kate was when John told her how everyone was going to die if she didn't return, is there anyone watching this show who really cares about her love life? The show needs to focus more on the mythology. Thanks, Kelly, for sending in your thoughts at the last minute. I'm glad I was able to squeeze them in there. Um, and I think you're thinking along the same lines as Martin, who uh, we had a comment from Martin earlier, um, looking at the humanity of the characters and the way they interact and enjoying some of that as well. Um, that's definitely a very important aspect of the show. And so um, commenting on the romance and the way the characters um, are going to affect each other, the way it's going to affect everything to have Kate back in the picture. Um, I wonder what it's going to be like when Jack first sees Juliet, if there's going to be any anything kind of left over there, because, I mean, he did kiss her, even though she knew when he was having surgery, she said she knew that he liked Kate. Um, there's still something between them, I think, and so it's going to be interesting to see how all of that works out. 
Next, we have a voicemail from Stacy. Hey, Anna, it's Stacy calling from Portland, Oregon. So I had a theory that Wigmore must have a camera on the island or cameras on the island or a very good and well-informed spy because he knows that Ben tried to kill Locke. He knows that, um, or who Michael Dawson is, who Walt is, and what Walt used to look like when he was on the island. Um, and going further on this thought, I think that Widmore is the one who told Sun that Ben was responsible for blowing up the freighter by killing Kimi. So the only two people that know that um, Locke was responsible for blowing up the freighter are Locke and Ben. Um, and, you know, Kimi's dead, so he couldn't say anything. And we know that Locke never went to visit Sun, and I don't think Ben would have told Sun that info. So the only thing that leaves me with is that somehow um, Widmore knew about it via possibly a camera in Orchid, and that he told Sun that in order to get her to kill Ben. So um, those are my thoughts on that. I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. Um, the other thing that just brings up is that um, Abaddon knows who Michael Dawson and Walt are. That means Widmore knows. and. Uh, Michael was on the freighter. They must have known um, that Michael wasn't really Kevin Johnson and that he had been on the island, um, but they let him on the freighter anyways. So that just sort of came to my mind as well. All right, well, keep up the good work. Thanks so much. Bye. Wow, Stacey, I think you have some really great ideas about Widmore and possibly having a spy or a camera on the island. I think a spy seems more likely with the range of information that he knows. Maybe he had someone on the first plane. Maybe somebody we know and love is not who we think they are. I mean, that would be pretty crazy. But uh seems like it'd be a possibility with all the stuff that he knows. He must have an inside man. And for your thoughts about Abaddon, um, knowing who Michael and Walt are, yeah, it all seems really fishy, and why John Locke isn't picking up on that um, in last week's episode is strange, you know? And why they let Michael on the freighter, they must have known. Maybe they thought that through Michael they could get to Ben. Um, it's all just a really strange situation. The second voicemail comes from Alex. He is commenting on a call that we had last week from Donald, where he was asking some questions about Locke's resurrection. So I'll let you hear that. Hey, Anna, it's Alex in Boston. Thanks for taking my call last week. Um, I wanted to talk not about the episode, but about a comment you made. Um, you had a call in from Donald, uh, from Donald is Lost Fame, and you guys were discussing the religious aspects and specifically um, the comparison of Locke to Christ in the Jeremy Bentham episode. Um, and I think both you guys were noting that that potentially could be offensive to some viewers, and you yourself, if I was following you, said that you would personally find it offensive if they portrayed Locke as this uh, extremely flawed character, as they do, and also compared him to Jesus Christ. And I just wanted to respond to that, not to make all this too heavy, but I think probably Christ was a flawed individual, and there are movies like The Last, Last Temptation of Christ that address that um, in a really interesting way, that he was a human being um, who I guess eventually obtained some divine stature, but he was a human being who struggled with his frailties and temptations and things like that. So in that sense, I don't see any problem with portraying um, a Christ-like figure in a movie or TV show as flawed. Um, but to the other question of whether um, I 
approve of portraying Christ-like figures in movies and TV. I really don't. Not because it's offensive, but because it's been done um, so many times, and it's often done in a heavy-handed manner as here, you know, sort of Locke almost literally being crucified and uh, the notion of the doubting Thomas and uh, Ben kneeling at his feet and so forth. So I think that's been done to death, and I think it's being done here in a sort of overly heavy-handed manner. Um, I think the notion of John Locke as sort of a Dalai Lama-like figure, uh, which we saw in the episode where Richard Alpert kind of tested him in that regard, that to me is much more interesting and frankly less likely to be offensive as well. So I uh, apologize for dragging your podcast down into sort of a theological discussion, um, but uh, great job on the show, and I'm going to keep listening. Bye. Thanks for your call, Alex, and thanks for continuing this conversation. I think it's a conversation that's going to be ongoing as we find out more about this mystery of John Locke and how he was raised from the dead and how this could possibly be. Um, I think as far as your comments about Jesus go, I think that um, the way I'm looking at this is that um, there are a lot of biblical references in the show, and so if you're going to use one, then you should make sure it's it's accurate, you know? Um, and so saying that Jesus is flawed doesn't fit in with what the Bible says about Jesus. In Hebrews, it says that Jesus was tempted in all things, just like people are, except he didn't sin. And so um, if you're completely going with what the Bible says, then I think you need to um, recognize that it does teach that Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time, and that he lived a perfect life and didn't sin. And so, yes, that's what makes me nervous about comparing John Locke to him. But um, yeah, like you said, resurrection and... um, being raised from the dead, those are themes that are often done, or some sort of transformation from one life to another. Um, The Dalai Lama that you mentioned, he didn't rise from the dead, so I'm not really seeing that connection to Locke's uh, resurrection. Um, Maybe the test was sort of the same, but they do seem to be mixing a lot of different religious references in here, so it is hard to keep it straight what exactly they're going for, and of course that's why we're all so confused and we're talking about this still. So thanks for your call. The next call is from Donald from the Donald is Lost podcast. Hey Anna, this is Donald. I'm from Louisiana. Just wanted to stop by Jacob's cabin. I couldn't find it earlier. I heard some whispers and it vanished, but kinda of, I wanted to bring up the point of Charlotte disappearing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when the last flash took place they were in the the era of the four-toed statue. So might have been way back to B.C., who knows what time, but it was a while ago, and we know that for a fact. So if Charlotte's body didn't, didn't make that final jump, then she's still in that time. So perhaps someone came across it, laid it in the caves, put a black stone on it, and maybe we have ourselves an Eve. Uh, just throwing that by you. Hope you can catch it, play it on the show so I can be famous. All right. See you later. Well, I'm glad you found Jacob's Cabin, Donald, after all your hard searching. And I'm sure that you don't need to have your call played on here to be famous. You're probably famous enough by yourself. But uh, I guess you're famous for disliking cheese, that's for sure. But uh, as for your comments about Charlotte, that those are some really good thoughts. Um, I thought it was strange that her body stayed behind. I guess we didn't really know, though, whether or not that happened with people like Frogert and stuff. They weren't really around when they flashed again. So um, 
And the way that Daniel referred to it, I thought also was weird that she moved on and we stayed. I thought she stayed, but, um, could she be Eve? That's an interesting question. But then who's Adam? Where would he come from? And why would somebody drag her body all the way over to the cave? I can't really see that, but, um, it was, it was definitely a sad moment to see Dan just sitting there on the ground and she was gone. The poor guy. Well, I think that wraps up our feedback for this week. I'll be back in just a second. Denise will be here and we're going to talk about the episode a little bit more. Good to see you again. Yeah. So, Lafleur, what do you think? I actually really liked it. Yeah. I know that some people are like, oh, it was kind of slow or whatever, but I don't know. I really enjoyed it. And seeing the statue, mm-hmm. I actually yelled out loud, oh my God, <laughs> because I was so excited. Oh yeah, I yelled too. <laughs> and when I realized that it was like an Egyptian mythology thing, I was even more excited because when I was a little kid, I wanted to be an Egyptologist. No, you're like Charlotte. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there wasn't really a job market for it, so I didn't do it, but I've always been really interested in that stuff. Well, great. Well, speaking of Charlotte, um, whenever Ben originally introduced her, he said that her birthday was July 2nd of 79, but if she was a little kid that the one in the red dress that right. Daniel waved to, and that was 1977. She had probably had to have been born well, that was maybe... 1974, I think, because Sawyer said it was 74 to Juliet on the dock, I think, when they were about to get off. He said, it's 1974. Who, mm-hmm. do you, who are you going to get off the island and go see? What are you going to do? And that was the three years earlier. So then three years later would be 77. Oh, I thought that was during 77. I think I think they were in 1974. But anyways, that's yet another case of Ben lying, because Ben is evil. Right. But... That makes Charlotte a lot older. I mean, that's like a 10-year difference almost in her age. Yeah, I noticed that. Since she's my birthday twin, I paid attention. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, I was wondering, what does that mean? I mean, what else do we supposedly know about Charlotte that we don't actually know? Yeah, and why wouldn't she tell Ben, you're wrong, you don't really know me, if he had all this information wrong? Because he said she was born in England, and he said she was a certain age, you know, just really basic things about her. He got them wrong. Why wasn't she questioning it? I mean, I can I can see her saying, like, not wanting to say, oh, you're lying about where she was born, since it was on the island. But, I mean, an age thing... Doesn't I, seem like a big deal, really. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of girls try to be like, oh, I'm 29 for 15 years. Right. But, <laughs> oh, and actually she would be 29 at that point. <laughs> but I doubt that it was really that big of a deal, so it was weird that that was something that was lied about. I mean, right. if that was Charlotte at all. Do you think it could be one of her sisters? Because Ben said she had some sisters. Maybe it could. Because, it, you know, if she's got that color red hair, there's a good chance that most of her family has that color red hair. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there's no real way for Daniel to know that, so maybe it was just one of her sisters. Yeah. I don't think there's really much doubt it must have been her family, because how many British families were there Yeah, I heard the, the British island? accent a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking Annie for a little while, but then I thought, wait, she doesn't have the accent. Yeah, and Annie's hair was, I think, a little bit more blonde than that. Yeah, it was. I really want to find out about Annie already. They keep <laughs> tricking us. They're like, oh, that's Amy. And I'm like, no, show us Annie. Because I still want Annie to be Charlotte's mom. But I guess that really wouldn't work with the British thing. Yeah. But maybe she just really liked British accents and decided to pick one up. 
could be. I mean, Faraday apparently doesn't like the British accent from his mom. Mm-hmm. And so he picked up the American accent. Yeah. I mean, if I had a reason to, I would totally get myself an Australian accent. <laughs> so, Denise, there's that scene when Albert walked into the barracks area, you know? Mm-hmm. And he walks up with a torch. How long did it take you to realize who it was? Um... I thought of somebody else at first. I was like, that's either Albert or somebody else, but I'm totally blanking on who else I thought it might be. I guess I thought for a second maybe it was John, but then I was like, Mm -hmm. wait, that doesn't fit the body type or anything. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Albert looked pretty super serious there. It was kind of of weird because, you know, a lot of times he has the I'm serious, but I'm still nice Mm -hmm. at the same time look, and this was like, I'm pretty serious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what did you think of Sawyer volunteering to go out and talk to him? It it sounded like a very Sawyer thing to do, because especially since he's taken on the leadership role. Right. Like, I'm going to go and I'm going to try to fix this. I mean, even though it's, you know, he's being a con man, but that's what he does best, I think. Yeah, yeah, he did it really well. Um, But I thought it was weird that he kind of placed the torch in the ground like that. And then walked away from it? Yeah. I don't Mm -hmm. know, maybe it was kind of like drawing a line in the mud like... You do this, I do this, I don't know. Mm. Yeah, he must not be afraid to go there, you know, because he just stood out there in the open. All these people all ran inside and grabbed their shotguns, Uh and he's just standing there. You know, anybody could have taken a shot at him, but then I guess that would have brought the rest of the hostiles down on them really quickly. So I guess um, maybe they're outnumbered. I mean, we don't really know the numbers of the Dharma Initiative, how many people they have. You can't even really count the houses. Yeah, I was thinking maybe they had tried to shoot at him before and found out that it didn't work Hmm. because if he's some sort of immortal and... If they realize they can't attack him, that's why they're like, oh, man, I'm getting inside because if he goes crazy, he can kill us, but we can't kill him. That's true. And, you know, even if his flesh isn't immortal, you know, Mm -hmm. even if his flesh could be harmed, it could just be the island's will for him is so strong that if they tried to shoot, the gun would jam every time. Yeah. Or something else would go wrong because we've seen that happen for other people. And he seems to be so important to the island itself that I think something like that would probably happen. Or maybe he's got super healing powers like Wolverine or something. <laughs> that if he gets hurt, he can just instantly heal himself. Hmm. X-Men on the island. Totally. Someone was telling me last night, someone who doesn't watch Lost said, It's all aliens. I could see Albert being an alien. <laughs> an alien with good makeup. So I think we both really like the eyeliner line. Yeah, I totally laughed out loud at that. Because it was kind of like a nod to the fans. Oh, yeah. I mean, at home, I personally call him Guy Liner. <laughs> I, I don't remember where I heard that first, but it's so perfect. And everything I've ever seen him in, he looks like he just has the most perfect eyeliner. Mm-hmm. It's not fair. <laughs> now, how about Sawyer's character growth? I mean, like you were just saying a minute ago, he's gone through so much of a transformation, and he's become this person who's a leader. He's become the person who volunteers to go out and take responsibility for killing the men in order to save everybody else from Richard's wrath, basically. Yeah, season one Sawyer would have never done anything like that. I mean, he was holding the medicine hostage, holding the guns hostage, Mm -hmm. and just being like, well, I got my stuff, too bad for you guys. And it's just a complete 180. Mm -hmm. I mean, now he actually cares about his people, wants everything to be okay, and I really like that growth in Sawyer. And you can tell that, I mean, he's an intelligent guy. Maybe he just didn't know... He didn't know how to really show that before because right. he was so caught up in the I'm a con man and I'm a tough guy world. Yeah. But you can see with him being such a bookworm that there's a lot more to him than he was presenting at first. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, there's a line he says pretty early on in season one, I think when he's inside the fuselage and he's getting some stuff out and Jack runs into him and he tells Jack, well, we have to, you know, take this stuff out of here. We have to use what we can. And he says, we're in the wild. And then he really thinks he's in the wild and now he's in the civilization. He's living in a house with Juliet. I mean, how much more civilized does it get on the island at least? Yeah. So he's really come around from thinking thinking from the mindset of someone who's in the wild, this is survival, this is do what you have to, and don't worry about anyone else, just look out for yourself, to someone who's, okay, group mentality, Mm -hmm. what's best for all of us, and how do we all work together, and what can I do to benefit everyone? He was so concerned about the baby, Amy's baby, being born. I mean, he basically made Juliet go and help her, because Mm -hmm. he didn't want to see anything bad happen. Right. And, you know, season one Sawyer would have never done that, ever. And he didn't like children back then either, you know? Yeah. He was like, babies, that's not my baby. Well, you remember um, whenever Hurley was like, oh, you know, you have to be nice to everyone or else they're going to kick you out of the... Boat you down down the beach. Yeah. (laughs) And he's like, oh, that's a... That's a nice baby. Here's a blanket for him. <laughs> yeah, and it was so awkward, but now it's so so natural, you know? He's pacing in front of the infirmary, kind of taking Horace's place. Yeah. Since he couldn't be there, the place of, like, the anxious father. Yeah, and I think that that's also kind of paralleled in the fact that he's the boss of the security now. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he's in a take-charge role. Right, right. And that's so much more of what he is now. And just also seeing his humanity whenever he was talking about having to get over Kate. Right. Whenever Horace was asking, you know, is three years enough to get over someone? Yeah. And whenever Sawyer was talking about that, you could really feel the emotion that he never had before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it seems like he's settling down with Juliet now, which I guess we could always kind of see that happening mm-hmm. from beforehand. Yeah, sort of expected it. But he seems content you know, with yeah. Kate, he I think he almost kind of liked the drama, like, which one is Kate going to pick today? Mm-hmm. But I think with Juliet, he's settling into a more happy, just family kind of lifestyle, which goes along with my theory that Juliet's pregnant now. Hmm. Because when she was washing dishes, see, I don't know, maybe it was just her shirt, but it looked like, looked like maybe she was pregnant. Oh, so you think maybe they were trying to hint? Mm-hmm. If that was so, that she could be pregnant? Yeah, because I was wondering if maybe her getting pregnant and the fact that she probably shouldn't do that because all the time jumping, maybe that might have been what, like, the catalyst to the whole pregnancy island dying deal. Huh, that'd be ironic since they brought her there to solve the problem. Yeah, but if you think about it, that sounds like a very lost thing to do. It does, but how would it travel to other women? Like, how would it affect other people? I don't know. Is she radioactive or something? Maybe. Or it could have something to do with the incident. Okay. Like, say that they have to have um, more time travel. Because I'm assuming they're going to have to have more time travel at some point to get everybody who's in the past back to the present. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like prime material for an incident to occur. I don't know if it would be the same incident as the one that Pierre Chang referenced in one of the orientation videos. Yeah. But it could be. You know, it could be that something else happened that things just got out of control and the Losties were able to get back to the present time through that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I just think that there's going to have to be some more time travel to get everybody back on the same page. And I was also thinking that if this happens, then it makes a lot of sense, more time travel. Because uh-huh. Richard came to John when he had the bullet in his leg from Ethan shooting him. Right. And told him he had to die, and he knew where to find him, to find him there by the plane. 
But how did he know that? How would he have known where to tell John? Because that conversation didn't take place in their interaction back in 1954. Yeah. And for him to remember that long, even for an immortal-seeming person, I think that'd be kind of challenging. Oh, you need to find me by the plane on this day. Um. <laughs> or maybe if he's some sort of immortal, he has, like, a multi-track mind where he can <laughs> keep track of everything all at once. Or, oh, he's, or he's got a Daniel notebook. Yeah. Well, maybe Daniel wrote it in the notebook... Richard has the notebook. Did we see Daniel with the notebook in this episode? Because I don't remember seeing the notebook. No. And if he lost it, that could be catastrophic. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, imagine... Because wasn't Caesar looking through the notebook last week? He was looking through some loose papers. It had a drawing that was the same as Mm -hmm. one in the notebook. It wasn't the notebook, though. But I wonder how much stuff is written in there from, you know, the 70s or something. That's true. It could be a lot. Yeah. A lot of stuff in And there. maybe that's how Ben knows all this stuff that's going to happen. Maybe Daniel was writing some of it down. Do you think he really knows, though? Because he seems surprised a lot of the time. Well, I mean, stuff that happened in the past seasons, you know? Mm. Like, that's how he knows, oh, we need this, this, and this person. Or, you know, I need to do this. Or I need to shoot Locke right through his missing kidney. So, then... That would imply that the lists are made up by Ben based on other things and not based on what Jacob says. It could happen. That's a pretty strong accusation, Denise. Could. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's about all we really had to say. Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't all that many mysteries in mm-hmm. this one, but I still thought it was a really good episode. Yeah. Now, next week, there's no episode of Lost. Yeah. And then the week after that is another episode, but we're going to be on spring break This podcast is not taking a spring break, however, but Denise is going to be traveling, so we're going to have to try something new, um, maybe Skype our our portion together, so uh, that'll be an adventure, but we will definitely still have a podcast out to you guys, so no worries about that. And if anyone out there has a podcast that they use Skype and you have some tips for us... Yeah, that'd be nice. Let us know. Yeah. And speaking of which, the ways you can get in touch with Jacob's Cabin, you can email anna.in.indiana at gmail.com. You can always call and leave a voicemail. The number is 646-495-9205, extension 35382. And if you're like me and you can't remember that number off the top of your head, you can always find it on the blog, annainindiana.wordpress.com. It's on the contact page. It's usually also on the post where I post about the episode so that you can comment on it. So um, feel free to get in touch any way you want. You can also find me on Twitter. My Twitter name is EchoBase77. You can also find Denise on Twitter. Denise, what's your name? Um, I am Sharp Cheddar, like the cheese. Yes, like the cheese. And so you can follow Denise as well. She would love to have some more followers. So, the only thing we have left to do now is our character awards. We had quite the debate going on last week, didn't we, Denise? It's still going. It is still going, and the results are in, but first we want to hear a few people's thoughts on the whole Ben versus Widmore. Who do you trust more? So, um, let's just kind of look at what some people had to say. We got some comments on the blog as well as on the poll itself. Um, Have anything... That stands out to you, Denise? Um, the first one that I really liked was a comment from Debbie that says, I think both of these nutters have delusions of grandeur, wouldn't trust either one. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about, um, we keep saying who's good, but maybe it's just the lesser of two evils. Yeah. That, you know, we're picking both are bad options. Yeah. One of them has to be the leader. Um, here's an idea about Ben that Roger wrote. He says, Ben is not loyal to those who trust him, such as when he told Mikhail to kill Greta and Bonnie in the looking glass. You know, those people had worked for him for who knows how long. Yeah. And he's just like, 
oh, well, kill them because it's convenient for me. And they were down there being completely isolated. Yeah. Who knows how far oh, underwater. Yeah. And Ben's like, oh, off them. Yeah. Let's go. Pretty harsh. Um, let's see. Kelly also says, what we've seen of Woodmore is pretty over-the-top protective instinct. Hmm. And, you know, that can be bad, but it can be good also. Because if he if he's trying to protect people, that's better than him trying to kill people. Yeah. Here's interesting perspective from Anne Beth. She said, how about they are both good? My guess is that maybe there is a third party we haven't met yet, but they are the bad guys in the war, the enemies of both Widmore and Ben. That w- interesting. Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, although we're not really being set up to be able to like either of them. You know, we're not really thinking either of them are good. We're thinking both of them are bad, so maybe the other third party is good. I know, but who could the other third party be? I don't know. <laughs> Unless the third party is Albert. Mm. Now, it looks like Chris commented here on the last minute. Chris is our coworker. He has very strong opinions about this. And he wrote on the poll, Widmore, 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 Widmore. I'm sure the vote wasn't that close. I think Anna voted multiple times. I demand a recount. Chris, you can't vote multiple times. I set up the poll so you can only vote once. So Unless you vote from different computers, Anna. I didn't do that, though. I could have used every computer on the entire campus, but I did not. I used my personal home computer, and that was it. But yeah. I did vote. I don't usually vote, but I did vote this time. I assume I was, you voted for Ben. I did vote for Ben, and I was disappointed because when I voted, so many people had voted that my vote hardly mattered. It was democracy in action. <laughs> the percentage of Ben's thing only went up 3%. And I was like, what? That's all my vote did? Well, I voted for Widmore because I still think that he's probably the the lesser of the two evils. But I was one of the first people to vote. Mm. So my vote mattered a lot. Oh, great. <laughs> Here's a comment from the poll that was left by someone named Hemisphere Dancer, which I think is a really cool name. Uh, they say, my instincts lead me to trust Widmore more than Ben. I trust Ben less. Also, based on Ben's telling John after he had killed him that he would miss him, I don't believe that Ben ever thought he would encounter John again, convincing me that Ben killed John out of pure evil. Okay, and one more from Sean O'Nevo. He says, Ben moved the island willingly, and that confused Widmore. Ben did it knowing he may never return to the only place that he wanted to see, that he wanted to be. He sacrificed that. I think that Ben is... And this is a spoiler alert if you've not finished Harry Potter 6 and 7. <laughs> um, I believe that Ben is like Snape when he killed Dumbledore. He had to do it, but that doesn't make him a bad guy. Mm. All right. And then I've got one final one here from Coke Logic. Um, he says, you can't trust Ben. Ben lies. And the fact that Ben tricked Widmore into leaving the island is a great example of who you can trust more. Yeah, I can't wait to find out who we actually can trust. Yeah. Um, thanks also to Ian and Tiny, Tiny the Bodyguard, and Alma Rose for leaving comments as well. Thank you guys all for coming by the poll and voting. So, results. Results are in, and it looks like you guys trust Widmore more than you trust Ben. 55% to 45%. It was a lot closer at the end than it was a couple days ago, though. I yeah, have to say. it was. My Ben people pulled through. Way to go, people. We can trust Ben. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that still, but Chris and I, were on the Widmore team, so. Yeah, and I'm on the Ben team. So the Character Award nominees for this week, I thought we could do something interesting and put Sawyer up against Juliet. Yeah. So Sawyer, he's nominated because he showed a lot of compassion during this episode. He first saved Amy from being killed, and then he basically saved her from dying 
when she was having the baby and she needed a C-section. He went and basically forced Juliet to do that. But then Juliet were nominating her because um, she actually went in and did the procedure. She was scared to death. She'd had nothing but bad experiences in her three years on the island, which must have been really traumatic, but she went in, did the surgery, turned out fine. So um, we're nominating her for overcoming her fear, basically. So those are the options for next week. You can find the link to the poll on the blog, which again is at annainindiana.wordpress.com. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you back here in two weeks for the next new episode of Lost. Take care. The music in this episode was provided by the Pod Show Pod Safe Music Network. Check them out at music.podshow.com. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.